All right, so today is our final message in the First John series. I've just been preaching it whenever I get the chance. There's actually been 12 messages, uh, and I don't expect you guys to remember all of those, but we're going to kind of hit on a lot of the big points of those throughout the message today. Today's big idea is the result of belief in a true God is confidence and certainty in Him. So the result of belief in the true God is confidence and certainty in Him. And we're going to be in those last verses of 1 John chapter 5. And the title of the message is The Blessings of Real Faith. We face a lot of hard questions in life. I faced a hard question uh, last fall. Uh, my uh, rear differential went out in my truck, and I went to get one out of another junk truck, and I drove all the way out there, and the differential was a little bit different on this truck. I had all my tools. I had the time, uh, and I wasn't 100% sure if it would fit. And so I kind of had a 50-50 shot. It's the same age truck and everything. It should fit. It looks a little different. And so I went ahead and took the gamble and uh, spent a whole afternoon pulling that part out of the old truck. And fortunately for me, it paid off, and it actually did fit and works fine in my truck now. But that was kind of like one of those 50-50 uh, I don't really know, and you don't really have the means to, ha to find the answer uh, if it, this will work or not. Perhaps you find yourself today asking some hard questions. There's lots of different hard questions uh, that we face. Uh, maybe you're asking yourself, is God real? Is Jesus the only way? Where am I going to go when I die? Does Satan have control of me? Uh, maybe you're asking yourself, am I really a Christian? Perhaps you feel and are asking yourself, you feel like what you've done is unforgivable and you're asking yourself that question, is, the, is what I've done forgivable? Perhaps you feel like your prayers aren't answered and you're asking yourself, are my prayers even heard, let alone answered? Those are some tough questions, but fortunately we are going to look at the answers to those questions today in the book of 1 John. So before we jump in, we kind of need to set the stage once again for our passage. This will be the last time I do this. So the previous passage that we looked at described uh, believers as overcomers and those who believe in Jesus uh, as their Lord and Savior. They were called overcomers. And John presented... Uh, not only his own testimony through the book, but most recently in our last message, God's actually testimony that Jesus is truly uh, God and truly man. Why is that so important, you might ask? And that's a, a question we'll answer today, but we really looked heavily at last week. But John wrote specifically to deal with these false teachers that were in the midst uh, of the believers he was writing to, and he gives a series of tests through this book to identify them. Hopefully, if you remember anything from the series, you'll remember that. Um, these tests are useful to apply to our lives also as evidences of genuine faith, and, and John does that. And today, he's going to give even more application to our lives, those of us that aren't the false teachers. 
Uh, he uses repetition once again to ingrain this into um, our minds and keeps taking us a layer deeper, a layer deeper. And today, in the last section of the book, he's going to kind of hit on all of that. The major tests that he presented were the tests of doctrine, specifically about Jesus Christ, and the test of morals, of love and obedience. Um, so last week, we actually did the first point of this message. So I think there's five points, and we already covered one last week. And that is that we observe the first Christian certainty. So we're going to look at five different things that are certain uh, for the Christian. And hopefully that provides you with some encouragement uh, and some confidence um, as you look at these things. And, and it'll probably give you some things that perhaps you need to work on too as well. I know it did for me. So we looked at the first Christian certainty, and that was assurance of salvation last week. And we looked at the fact that it all comes down to who your faith is in. And if it's in Jesus, you're saved. And that is a, a fact and something that you can place your confidence in and you should have assurance in. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later on today. But once again, uh, John wrote his gospel to bring people to salvation. We looked at verse 13. These things, 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So once again, John wrote this gospel to bring people to salvation. Or he wrote his, his gospel to bring uh, John, the book of John, to bring salvation to people, but he wrote his epistle, 1 John here, uh, to give confidence for believers in eternal life. Uh, and that confidence, once again, is all about where their faith is. So that's the first Christian certainty that we have is we can be assured of our salvation. And in the conclusion of the book, he gives a list of more uh, Christian certainties. And at the end, uh, of the message, I'm going to talk a little bit about why sometimes we truly are believers, we truly have placed our faith in Christ, but we struggle with that assurance of salvation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that at the end too as well. So the second Christian certainty you can find in verse 14, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have the petition that we have asked of him. Oh, super cool. I want a new bass boat. So if I ask God for a new bass boat, uh, he's going to hear it, right? Well, there is uh, a really big key element in this passage, and that is the words according to his will. But before we jump in that, Let's start at the beginning of the verse again. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. We looked at this idea in chapter 3, verse 21. I guess I can read it for you real quick. Chapter 3, verse 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And in that passage, we looked at the concept that love actually banishes uh, fear and, and self-condemnation. See, when a Christian recognizes 
in his life, the manifestation of love in his actions. So when he sees Christ's love flowing out of him, it results in confidence about his relationship in God. It actually can add and contribute. It's something tangible that you can hold on to to see the assurance, to see the reality of your salvation and, and fortifies your assurance of salvation. But not only that assurance of salvation, we can actually come to God in confidence in prayer. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 4 real quick. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16. It says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Uh, And I'm actually going to back up and read verses 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's really neat. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may attain mercy and find grace in the help in the time of need. So we can come to God in confidence. We can come to his throne. And that was actually a really maybe startling or unusual truth uh, for in ancient times. Uh, You can think of the illustration of Esther. But most ancient rulers were unapproachable by anyone except for their closest uh, uh, friends or highest advisors or whatever. And oftentimes it was a capital offense to come to Uh, somebody's throne uninvited. Uh, But God's saying that we can come to his throne. We can come directly to him any time. Now we get to that, that key element. We can come with confidence, but if we want him to actually hear us, according to this verse, the answer there is in the key element according to his word. So verse 14 again. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will... He hears us. So this means that our priority in prayer is to pray in line or according to what God wants. Our priority is not to pray for our desires. And and according to this passage, if we want God to even hear us, we shouldn't be doing that. What we want to do is pray for what he wants uh, for us. So a, a popular question I could foresee people saying is, or, or maybe not even that, but a mentality that we see is, as long as I ask it in God's name, then I'm good, right? And you could misinterpret that from 1 John 14, 13. Uh, but to ask in Jesus' name, which, by the way, is what we're doing when we say in Jesus' name, amen, Uh, It's not some magic words that you can sprinkle on a prayer and somehow make it uh, magically effective. Rather, it means a couple different things. First of all, it means that the believers should pray uh, for Jesus or or God's purposes and kingdom, not for selfish reasons. And our prayers should be based on Jesus' worthiness, not our own. And our prayers should be in pursuit of his glory, not our own. So those are some things that kind of help you focus on praying in line with God. 
And then another question that I thought of is, aren't our desires supposed to be God's desires? Uh, and in John 15, well, I'll, let me read John 15, 7 here. Because what I'm about to say might sound like it contradicts this, but I don't think that it does. John 15, 7 says, If you abide in me and my words in you, you you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So that passage actually tells us to ask what we desire for um, if we abide in God. So then our desires actually line up with God's desires. But also remember, Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 tells us that the heart is above all deceitfully wicked, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And a lot of times we think about other people when we're thinking about the heart being desperately wicked. But the main person who our heart deceives is actually ourselves. We're, our heart is so deceptive that we deceive ourselves uh, into thinking that we're justifying um, what we're doing or even justifying our prayers thinking, well, this is God's desire when really the primary motivation there is because it's our desire. Um, and according to that passage, we should never really trust our hearts. So when you think of your desires or God's desires, uh, the motivation sh for prayer should always primarily be God's desires. Now, if your desires line up with God's desires, that's great. Uh, but that primary motivational factor, what you're primarily praying for above all, is God's desires. So I think if we stick with what John is saying and pray in accordance with God's will and let that be in our motivation uh, for our prayer, uh, that's probably the way to go. And our living right and our desires will probably start to fall in line with that. So another question people might ask is, how do we even know what God wants or what his will is? And Sometimes people think about God's will as God dictating everything in life. So you have a choice to drink apple juice or orange juice. Which one is God's will? And I don't really think that's how God's will works. Now, if one of those options was clearly sin, God's will would be for you not to sin, obviously. I think God's main concern is wisdom in, in his will for us is like we think of God's will in terms of like the big decisions that we have to make, but I think God's will for us, and as you see it laid out in scripture, what specifically God states is his will for us is things more so in how we conduct our ordinary life. So apart from God's Holy Spirit working through scripture in our lives, God doesn't promise to use any other means to guide us, and nor should we expect him to. Could he? Perhaps, but that's, that's not normal and not something that we should expect. So we shouldn't expect uh, supernatural experiences to help us make uh, decisions in life. Uh, but really, in order to be within God's will, um, these are the things that Scripture uh, gives for us. So how do you know what he wants or what his will is, well, here you go. I'm going to tell you what God's will is for your life. Um, amazingly, God's will is the same for all of you guys. His will is for you to be set apart from sin to himself, to God, 
to be rejoicing, to be in prayer, to be giving thanks, to be bearing fruit for him, getting to know him better, being filled with the Holy Spirit, grow in Christ's likeness, to be trusting him, to be wise. I think you can back that up. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18, Colossians 1.9, Ephesians 5.17, Romans 8.28-29, Proverbs 2.1-6, Psalm 37. And we could do a whole sermon just talking about God's will. So when you think about looking at God's will for us, those are there's a whole bunch of things there for what God's will is for us. So when we pray, be praying with that mindset for us to be set apart for sin, be rejoicing, be praying, be giving thanks, bearing fruit for him, getting to know him better, filled with the spirit, growing in Christ's likeness, trusting in him. Uh, and we could continue on with those things. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that he asked for him. Verse 16 then says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, I, I think that phrase is funny, sinning a sin. It's, it's, it's actually quite serious if you look at it in the passage, but it just has a weird ring to it. But anyways, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death, I do not say that he should pray about that, but unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, you get to this part, and you're like, we're talking about um, answered prayer as a certainty for Christians, answered prayer. And now we're jumping into like this totally new section that's talking about sin that leads to death. Well, it's actually connected um, at first glance, it feels choppy maybe or unrelated, but it's actually an illustration about praying in line with God's will. So let's, first of all, I think we need to look at what we know about sin leading to death in order to really understand this illustration very well. So first of all, there is premeditated unconfessed sin in which the Lord will determine to punish or judge by ending a person's life, by death. So let me repeat the idea. Failure to repent and forsake of sin will eventually lead to physical death as judgment by God. And you want some examples for that? Read the Old Testament. Look at the story of the flood. Look at the story of Achan in Joshua 7, or Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Sometimes God does choose to judge sin with essentially capital punishment by ending a person's life. Second of all, God's discipline with physical death is inevitable in such cases as he seeks to preserve the purity of the church. So 1 Corinthians 5, 5 through 9 uh, you have the examples of people, I believe, that are defiling the communion table. And God says that some of them were punished or judged with death because of that. Uh, number three, it is not a specific sin such as lying or murder. So there is not a specific sin which results in God judging you via death. 
Uh, rather, it's whatever sin is the final one in the tolerance of God. And God is the perfect judge, and he is the one who fortunately makes that call. But understand that it's not a specific sin. So it's not like if you do this, you will be judged by death. That's a, a, uh, a, a judgment that God only will bring. And lastly, the contrasting phrases we see, sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death. Once again, it's not identifying sins as mortal or immortal. So understand that. And those two are kind of connected. So evidently, um, John's readers knew of whatever situation this illustration is that he was talking about. And we don't really know that illustration. But essentially, you have two possibilities. Um, so let's talk through those two possibilities. So who is this brother that's sinning a sin? Well, first of all, it could be a non-Christian, probably somebody that would have claimed Christ, claimed to be a real Christian, uh, but wasn't, who, by the way, we looked at yesterday was blasphemy. Uh, and blasphemy is a conscious denouncing and rejection of God. Um, to claim Christ and not truly believe him uh, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and calls God a liar. We looked at that last time. And John is actually writing to those pe to people that are in the church to help them identify these false teachers that are claiming to be Christ but really aren't. And so that would fall in line with this possibility. A non-Christian Christian that commits a sin in which God judges by death. This happens without them having never turned to God. So in that case, the sin would have been their final rejection of Jesus and led to their eternal death. So it wasn't an necessarily the unpardonable sin, but whatever sin that they they were they were a non-believer, they committed a sin that God chose to judge by death and they died having never repented. Therefore, uh, they will be separated from God eternally. And so, in that case, praying for restoration of that kind of person is futile. It's not in line with God's will. Uh, prayers for such won't be answered or even heard by God. God has already made the final decision about that person's future. And so that prayer, that makes sense in terms of prayer being in line with God's will. Now, just note for a second, as a sidebar, sin that leads to death and the unpardonable sin are two separate things. Uh, so, maybe I'll address the unpardonable sin for a second. You find it in the Matthew chapter 12 passage. That's where people uh, pull that from. God is, or Jesus is specifically talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. It says, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven by men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So the, the preceding context of that passage evidences the whole, that the scribes and Pharisees had such a profound hardness of heart that they... Um, should fear, basically, that they're on the brink of eternal ruin if it's not already too late. Actually, Jesus doesn't declare specifically that these describes are already condemned, but he's 
warning them about uh, their precarious position at least. So the, the reason these scribes are dangerously close to being guilty of eternal sin, I guess you could say, or the unpardonable sin, is because they're evidencing such an, a, a settled hardness of heart, not just against Jesus, but now explicitly against the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's the one who reveals or shows Jesus to us. Uh, and if, if they're in rejection of that and they persist in that, their hearts are no longer capable of repentance. So understand that it is not at all that they will be genuinely repentant but given the stiff arm and said, no, you've committed the sin, you won't, uh, you're not allowed to be saved. But essentially, if they're in that state, they're never going to come to a place of forgiveness because they'll never meet the simple, um, soft-hearted condition that's needed for repentance. So understand, the believer cannot commit a sin in which would unsave you. And you have, tr if you truly believe, you are eternally secure, okay? And then the unsaved who desire faith in Christ will always be forgiven. So there isn't a sin that you can commit that should you choose to place your faith in Christ, you would be rejected. So, once again, the first possibility that this illustration is, is a non-believer that commits a sin which God decides to judge by death. Therefore, the final word has been spoken. So there is no value in praying for their eternal state. God has already judged, and it, it's not praying according to the will. So that's one possibility. The second possibility is, it could be an actual believer, a true Christian, whose sin is so serious that God takes the life of the one committing it. Once again, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 would be an example of that. Also, the 1 Corinthians 11.30, the Lord's table, the seriousness of that. Once again, um, this is not necessarily a specific sin, but any sin that the Lord determines to judge with death. In either case, both... Both um, options reflect a biblical truth that, that backs up, that illustrates um, praying in God's will. So it's hard to be certain which he's actually referring to, but either in case, those individuals uh, were not in line with God's desire and God had judged them. And our, our prayers are no longer going to be effective because God has already made the final call there. And it's not, our prayers aren't going to result in any different outcome than it's already been determined by God. So, that's what verses 16 through 17 is talking about. It's actually illustrating that we need to pray and that God will hear our prayers if it's in line with his will. And if it's not, it's, it's futile. So, the third certainty that Christians can have, or the 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 third certainty that Christians have is that we have victory of sin or over sin and Satan. So verse 18, let's read that. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. So the phrase keeps himself, um, I'm, I'm going to spare you all the Greek and language mumbo jumbo, but 
uh, it could be better translated that God keeps him lowercase. So because the believer belongs to God, Satan must operate within God's sovereignty and cannot function beyond what God allows. So an example of that would be the story of Job. So while Satan might persecute us, tempt us, uh, test us, accuse us, God protects his children and places limits on Satan's influence for those who are true believers. So we have victory over sin and Satan. And that is a certainty that we have as true believers. Verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So there's two types of people that exist. Children of God, children of Satan. One belongs to God and one belongs to the worldly system, which we know from Scripture is run by Satan. True believers belong to God. Those that do not are not true believers belong to the world. So the, the fourth certainty for Christians is that we belong to God. The fifth certainty that Christians have is that Jesus is the true God. Verse 20, and this is what our whole sermon was about last week. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Let me repeat that last phrase. This is the true God and eternal life. This verse sums up the whole book of 1 John, essentially. The incarnation, Jesus' deity, Jesus was fully God, came, became man. Uh, the, that incarnation of Christ guarantees the certainties, the other certainties that we're looking at, and, and the certainties that, in, that the Scripture is truth, and the, in the truths of the rest of Scripture. The tests that we have looked at in this book weed out the fakers, as we could call it, people that claim to be Christ but really are not. They reveal the true overcomers, as we looked at a couple weeks ago. And those that remain after the false teachers have been weeded out and the true believers remain after those tests of faith remain with their foundational doctrine right based on Christ specifically that he talks about and out of that is going to flow love in obedience this is the true God in eternal life then he gets to verse 21 little children keep yourselves from idols and he ends the book with the word amen so be it I have little son will and we like, he loves, loves going outside. And we have a road in front of our house. It's not too busy, but um, there are cars going up and down it. And obviously, we do not want him to go out in that road. It's very dangerous for him. And so we frequently tell him, stay out of the road. It's dangerous. Stay away from the road and make that abundantly clear. Not, now, not only are we doing that, but we would actually physically grab him or keep him away from that uh, safety. But maybe that illustrates a little bit. In effect, John, he doesn't have the ability to grab his readers and keep them away from danger. So he is pleading with his readers about the dangerousness of the busy roadway or the dangers 
of false idols or we could put in false gods. Anyone, anything that we, as we looked at last week, anything that places its faith or anyone or any religion that places its faith in something outside of a biblical Jesus, fully God, fully man, or add something else to that, is a false religion and idol. And John is pleading, saying, stay away. That is dangerous. Stay away from those teachings. And he's doing that in in a loving, caring way. Little children, keep yourselves away from idols. The false teachers were holding up worldly philosophy higher than God's revelation. And it demonstrated their perversion of the basic Christian teachings of faith in Jesus and love for him and that resulting in love and obedience for him and and love towards others. Verse 20 and 21. And we know that the Son has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true And we are in him who is true. He's talking about Jesus. And in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols, from false teachers, from fake Jesuses. So hopefully, as we look at this passage today, as you consider the whole book of 1 John, some of these answers that we talked about that we face in life start to become clear. Is God real? Yes, he's real. Based on John's eyewitness account, Jesus is real based on God's account. He is the only way based upon John's witness and God's witness. Where will I go when you die? We looked at this extensively last week. It's very simple. If you place your faith in Jesus, in the biblical Jesus, heaven you will spend eternal life with him, and that, and that is heaven. That's where you go when you will die. And if you haven't placed your faith in him, if your faith is in anything else, um, you will not spend eternal life with him, and ultimately that will be in a place called hell. Does Satan have control of me? If you're saved, no. God has set parameters for what he can do, and one day he, God will conquer him, and his influence will not be uh, upon us at all. However, if you are unsaved, uh, Satan is in control of the worldly system and has a a much stronger influence upon you. Am I really a Christian? So oftentimes this question is based out of feelings. Um, While they should not, while feelings can't be trusted, uh, oftentimes they're valuable in that... um, They indicate problems in our lives. And the reason they can't be trusted is because they actually have no bearing on whether you are actually saved or not. So whether you're saved or not is all about whether or who you place your faith in. If you place your faith in Jesus, you are saved. It doesn't matter at all what you feel like. Now, your feelings are good indications that something is out of line. So if you're not living right, if you're not... If you are truly saved, if you've placed your faith in God, but you're not being obedient and you're not loving perhaps God or others like you should, if you're not living right, I'm telling you, you're not going to feel right. So if you don't feel saved, if you're really doubting that and you don't feel saved and you're wondering, am I really a Christian? 
it's either because one of two things. Your faith is misplaced. So you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, in which case you truly are not a believer and you should be answering that question, no, I'm not really a Christian. I need to make that decision and place my faith in Christ. Or it's because you have placed your faith in Jesus, but you're not being an obedient Christian. You're living and loving the wrong things. So if you're in that state... If your faith is in Christ and you begin to live for the right things, to love the right things, your feelings will start to mold and fall in line with that and begin to look like what the Bible describes them as they are supposed to be. Joy, confidence, peace, satisfaction in Christ, and assurance of salvation. And that's God's desire for us, to have assurance of our salvation, to have joy, to have confidence, to have peace and satisfaction in Christ no matter what life is throwing at us. Is what I have done unforgivable? No. Essentially, that's what this passage and passages that we've looked at in 1 John are telling us. Are my prayers even heard, let alone answered? Well, to answer the question, we're going to ask you a question. Are you asking for your desires or for God's desires? That's what we looked at here. If you're asking for God's desires, he will hear your prayers. So the Bible has answers to our questions. Um, The book of John has answers to some of these questions that we looked at. And once again, John writes in verse 13 of chapter 5, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know and that you may have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Verse 20, and we know that God, or and we know the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in the eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves away from false gods. Our big idea today is the result of belief in the true God is confidence and certainty in him and we have several certainties that he gives us assurance of salvation answered prayer victory over sin and satan the idea that we belong to god christians belong to god and that jesus is the true god he is not the idol he is the true god in which we should place our faith love and be obedient towards and live for And that is what the book of 1 John is all talking about. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for the book of 1 John, for the answers that it has to some of life's toughest questions. I thank you so much for the simplicity of salvation, that we can overcome sin and death by placing our faith in your son. Your son who we see is was is fully God, came to earth and became fully man and died on the cross as a sinless sacrifice to pay the debt of our sin. And when we place our faith in you, that when you see us, instead of seeing our sin, you see Jesus' sacrifice. I thank you so much for that truth. I pray that any of those that are listening to this message today, that are in your word today, that haven't placed their faith in you, that they would do that. And that they would experience the joy, the peace, the confidence that they can have in you. 
that they would experience the certainties that you give us uh, from faith in you. I pray that you would continue to grant those in our lives and that we would live out our lives in obedience, faith in you, and love towards you and flowing out to other people. I pray that you would give us opportunities to do that even this week, and we trust that you will answer that prayer as it is in line with your will and it is what you desire for us. Dear Lord, may you help us do that. May your Holy Spirit guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.